I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. In this episode, we talk to scholar-activist Richard Walker about his new book, Pictures of a Gone City. The book is an urban geography for our times, one that is both a sweeping account of the Bay Area as the world's tech capital and gusher of wealth, as well as its dark side of overheated bubbles, spectacular crashes, exploding inequality, underpaid workers, a boiling housing crisis, mass displacement, and severe environmental damage. It turns out that the miracle of Silicon Valley, including the sometimes delusional ideas behind the tech boom, carries a heavy price paid for in terms of unaffordability, traffic paralysis, environmental disruption, as well as the political challenges and the movements it has spawned. We then speak to Jacobin's Matt Carp, who evaluates the importance of the midterm elections and the politics of the Democratic Party, who went after suburban voters in this election. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm really pleased to have Richard Walker back with us. He is a scholar and an activist, a professor emeritus of geography at uh, UC Berkeley. He now divides his time between Berkeley and Burgundy, and that just sounds so attractive. He's a widely recognized expert on California and the author of many books on California and other topics as well, but let's go over those. The Conquest of Bread, 150 Years of Agribusiness in California that came out in 2004, The Country and the City, 2007, and an Atlas of California Facing the Challenges of a New Era in 2013. Dick Walker is now the director of the Living New Deal Project, whose purpose is to inventory all New Deal public work sites in the U.S. and recover the lost memory of government investment for the good of all. And he's joining us now to discuss his latest book, hot off the presses a few months ago, called Pictures of a Gone City Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's really a tour de force, and it is got so much in it. It's a political economy of the Bay Area. It's fact-dense. It's immensely readable, so it's written for the general public. And as described in one of the many favorable blurbs, Chris Carlson says it debunks the Horatio Alger promotional blather of self-flattering tech moguls, bringing us the real Bay Area based on nurses, teachers, drivers, clerks, the homeless, and the desperate. And of course, it's got much more in it than just that, and it's incredibly thorough. And with all of that, Dick Walker, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Susie, thanks for having me. You'll probably have to have me five or six times just to get through the book. And I have to say, just for the listeners, when you want to get this book, and it is published by PM Press, and Dick has the merit, and maybe this comes from being a scholar, signposting all the way. So he lays it out completely in the beginning, like what the book is going to do in all of its detail, and then it's divided into three parts, and then each part has an introduction, but so do most of the chapters, and they tell you where it's going to go. And I could almost see it being used as a textbook in a California class or a Bay Area class, but it's so much more. So let's jump into it. And I, okay. and I have to say, because 
I'm talking to you from Southern California, and there's some mention of Los Angeles, and it is about California and and what kind of a role California plays in the larger U.S. economy. But why should folks in Los Angeles really care about such a deep study of the Bay Area? What makes it of particular interest right now? Well, it does speak to the California experience. It speaks to the experience of all the prosperous big cities around the country, the ones that are the winners in the current, you know, the new economy for the last 30 years. And the Bay Area is simply the brightest star in that firmament and uh, the wealthiest and the highest average income, most rapid growth in the last decade. But uh, most of what's going on here, like the housing crisis, inequality, growing inequality, the recomposition of the working class, the people left behind, that sort of thing, environmental impacts, really speak to uh, big cities across the country and even around the world. Right. And maybe we should just also say that where the title came from, because when you think of pictures of a gone city, you know, people right away go and, you know, try to figure what that means. The city's certainly not gone. So, and I know you start the book out with the poem that it comes from. Can you tell our listeners what that is? Yeah, that's an old poetry book by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who founded City Lights Bookstore really one of the founders of the beat movement in San Francisco. I've always loved that book of poems, and there's one in there in particular, the pictures of a gone world that I adapted for this purpose, because he captures that the two-faced, the Janus-faced uh, side of uh, the good life in the city, that it's great if you've got the money, if you don't mind stepping over homeless people. <laughs> well, that's what's really good. And then, of course... And I think maybe what what's really gone in both of these is is the sort of uh, perfection, the notion of perfection that the Bay Area uh, represents. And you do in your book, of course, paint all of the positives, but you also, you know, talk about all the negatives. And I think, you know, the other thing is you actually do do in the book, Dick Walker, is to go into the importance of what the Beat Generation meant to San Francisco and to the country and perhaps the world. But let's go back because we started out talking about why people should care about the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular, but and why in L.A. we should care. And you do make some comparisons about the Bay area in Los Angeles. And we've seen a lot of those, you know, in recent years, in particular because San Francisco has succeeded as a higher wage economy than Los Angeles that is kind of the center now of of low wage jobs. Maybe you could go into a little bit more about the comparisons between the two. Yeah, they were about equal in 1975 in per capita income. And as Michael Storper and colleagues from UCLA have shown, the Bay Area zoomed ahead over the next 40 years. And that is by and large because of the emphasis here on the tech economy, the high-end kind of professional industries, uh, biotech as well, medical research and all that. Whereas L.A. decided to focus more on maintaining its manufacturing base and especially the logistics that are so important down there. But what's interesting... On our side, is even if we're in a world center of tech and such a great success story, uh, it's really important to see the dark side of it and that there's a lot wrong despite that. And my challenge, you know, as speaking from the left, 
was not just to take the usual uh, cases of failure of capitalism, but actually look at a success story and then say, yeah, but if you look closer, you still see all the contradictions of capitalism. And uh, I think that's important because the, the Bay Area spends a lot of time congratulating itself, mm-hmm. much to the annoyance of Los Angelinos and everybody else on how wonderful we are, and, uh, and yet our failures are really pronounced. And, you know, and plus of places, other places, you know, play this game, uh, like we saw with the competition over the so-called Amazon headquarters, Right. Which was basically just secondary growth center. But all these cities who prostrate themselves in order to try and attract big tech capital without any notion of the problems that that, that might ensue and the limitations of that model of tech-led growth, which, uh, you know, has vast inequality and enriches a small number at the top and leaves most of the workers underpaid at the bottom. And uh, those workers get forgotten in the stories about, oh, you know, the techies are also intelligent and well-educated and well-paid, but there are vast numbers of people needed to support that whole system. And so even here, we have a quarter of the workforce that's minimum wage, a third of the workforce that doesn't even make a living wage, given our high uh, cost of living here. And overall, you know, a workforce that despite a high average wage, high average salaries, is struggling, millions of people struggling to get by. And that part of the story of tech and success is almost never told. And it's part of the story that you really, I think, do very well in your book, Dick Walker, and that is to show that, you know, this is not a rising tide that lifts all boats, and you go through the sort of history, literally, of capitalist development, but especially in California, and from the New Deal to now. And I think one thing that kind of punctuated it this week, in fact, is Elon Musk, you know, unveiling his new tubes of <laughs> to alleviate the congestion of traffic that... And he did it right here in Southern California in Hawthorne. And for me, as someone who lives in Los Angeles but works in the Bay Area, you know, and I can see the one of the downsides of this new prosperity is just the congestion is not just for housing. You go into that very well, but traffic is unbelievable there. And you actually spend some time talking about Elon Musk and the others. And it's sort of like this view that tech saves the world and that the forces that created Silicon Valley and that have, you know, made the whole Bay Area both diffuse and prosperous have a dark side as well. So let's go into that a little bit about the dynamics of class and race relations and in relation especially to this kind of prosperity. Well, you know, I do want to emphasize that. When, we, when you asked me before about why should people be interested in the Bay Area, well, as the world center of tech, yeah. we send forth much of the ideas and the apps and the equipment and so on that has created the modern digital or virtual world from, you know, humble emails all the way to artificial intelligence that's impacting so much of the world, uh, so much of the way we live today, billions of people literally live today. And 
Well, I love your Elon Musk example because <laughs> there, you know, he's having a big impact. And here he comes to L.A. with his tunnels, also with his rocket ships. <laughs> and Musk is kind of a, a good example of the best and the worst of tech because he thinks he has a solution for everything, a tech solution, when most of the problems are still social problems that we have, like housing and inequality that are not going to be solved by tech. And he also, you know, if we have any idea that tech's going to save us politically, uh, Elon Musk is a good counter to that, because he's kind of the Donald Trump of tech. I mean, he's this <laughs> brilliant madman who, you know, survives and continues and comes up with some great ideas, but mostly, you know, craziness. And his rocket ships to Mars... And uh, who knows about his tunnels under L.A.? Maybe that's crazy. Maybe it's genius. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I did think that his notion of how to solve, you know, the high-speed corridor between L.A. and San Francisco, not building the bullet train, but building these tubes, you know, like you have at the bank. I forgot what they're called. Uh, pneumatic tubes. Pneumatic yeah. tubes that could propel 30 people at a time in 35 minutes, you know, from one to the other. Brilliant, yeah. right? But n- unrealized <laughs> No, and if you know anything about the history of the high-speed train and the <laughs> politics of it and the craziness of it, you know, that something like that will never get built. And Elon Musk hasn't a clue about those kind of political, social questions. And that, I suppose, is both his advantage and his disadvantage. But unfortunately, you know, neither did Mark Zuckerberg or the inventors of Google, like Sergey Brin and so on, uh, what they'd unleashed on the world. So th- I think that's important. And the naivete of these people is is really interesting because it's kind of like what's happened over and over in American history. We as a nation are just in love with modernity and progress and the promise of technology and progress in every new wave, whether it's the railroads or the automobile or chemicalized petro-farming, We have just laid down and said, oh, bring it on, it'll all be wonderful, and only discovered many years afterward all the problems that need to be regulated and thought about it and limited. So, And look what we've done to ourselves with something like the automobile age and a transport system based on automobiles. It's just crazy. chokes our cities and makes them nearly unlivable. Now, that's not the core of my book. I'm more interested in things like housing, the housing bubble and the housing crisis. But still, I mean, we fell in love with this technology, and we didn't look at it closely, and governments at every level have just let it run amok. And now we're realizing, oh, this is a very mixed blessing. So that is one thing I go into. I also, as I said, what's going on with your next question was about class and race. You created unbelievable riches at the top because these tech companies have replaced so many other companies, so much else of what we do, and the money just pours into their coffers, and they have the slightest idea what to do with it, so they'll use it on preposterous things like spaceships to Mars, and not on social benefits. I mean, they love their Trumpian tax cuts, for example, 
So they're not that progressive at all. Well, that's what you bring out as well, that despite all of these sort of progressive notions about the, you know, sort of opening up the frontiers of human possibility with the aid of tech, they still want big tax cuts and still pay low wages. You you mentioned that a lot. So let's go back. I I interrupted you, but you're talking about what the dynamics are. And as you're speaking, and before we go into this housing crisis, you know, you could go into the history a little bit of San Francisco as, you know, a bastion of unionism and great working-class jobs in the past no longer. <laughs> yeah, no, the Bay Area does have an honorable history of uh, progressive uh, struggles and progressive politics. I mean, it's a mixed bag, like all places in, in America and in California, with some horrendous racism and victories of the reactionaries. We saw that in the neoliberal era of the last part of the 20th century. California was an absolute leader in that. And uh, although it, the vanguard of that movement came out of Orange County and Southern California, a lot of Northern California conservatives got on the bandwagon with Reagan and thereafter. And uh, so we have a lot to answer for. But our honorable tradition is there. There's still a lot of progressives here, progressive organizations, and all kinds of domains, immigrant rights, environmentalism, Black Lives Matter, and so on, unions, that's to the good. But the impact of the tech bubble has been pretty hard on our progressive base because it's driven so many working-class people, people of color, artists and bohemians, and so on that used to you know, thrive in Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco. It's driven them out out of the area, you know, out to the far exurbs or even out of the Bay Area entirely. So there's been a thinning of the ranks. And unfortunately, the techies, although they're young, and there's a certain progressiveness of the youth of today, we know that they're more likely to be less racist and less sexist, more open to queer people and so on. At the same time, most of these young techies are fairly elite have gone to high-end schools to get their degrees and uh, are overwhelmingly white and male with a smattering of Asians and women. And they're very libertarian. There's just this very strong libertarian drift. And then when they succeed, I mean, that's the workers, and they're much more progressive than the guys at the top. But the tech capitalists, who've gone from the little startups who are going to change the world and bring us horizontality and wonderful new things. Once those guys get atop Google and Facebook and Apple and so on, they're just capitalists. They're just the latest generation, the latest wave of capitalists, and they behave like capitalists. They're interested in profit. We see that in the way they, they use their advertising money and they manipulate their system to sell our data to end all comers to make money. And unfortunately, their impact on the uh, progressive traditions of the Bay Area has been mostly negative. And it's really interesting, you know, I was just thinking, let me just tell the listeners that the book is Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area by Richard Walker, published by PM Press. But as you were speaking, I was thinking, and I want to go almost immediately into housing as kind of 
the sort of center that reveals all the the dark side of this new boom. But you were just talking about sort of the progressivity, I guess, of this modern projection of technology. And it's amazing that the brains that could bring you this tech revolution are now mostly concentrated, for example, in both Google and Facebook on how to manipulate people to click on ads. I mean, it's just like how much of their day and month and year goes into just thinking of new ways to make you buy things. And and what a waste of talent. Um, And and new ways to get their hooks deep into you and then sell that data to other people. And that's the in the way, the most distressing part of this whole thing. But we can't yeah. go into yeah. all the not. effects of the tech revolution today, but if we get back to housing... Yes, let's do it. One of the things you see that we have absolutely in common with L.A. and the Bay Area is these huge metropolitan areas are extraordinarily successful, expensive. California has the most expensive housing in the U.S. It's basically double the average in the rest of the U.S. And in the Bay Area, it's quadruple, and in L.A., almost. Right, and you point out that even San Francisco rents are at the top, like more expensive than New York. I think that's shocking. Absolutely, absolutely. The rents, both commercial rents and uh, housing rents, housing prices here are right at the top. And a place like Oakland that used to be kind of the black hole in the uh, glowing firmament universe of the Bay Area is itself, you know, just gentrified very rapidly, and the prices have shot up faster there than anywhere else in the Bay Area. So we we share this problem of very high rents. In fact, what's interesting, because average incomes in greater L.A. are lower than Mm -hmm. average incomes here, unaffordability of housing in L.A. is actually worse than it is here. And it's really bad in almost all the big cities, is the point. That prosperity has brought a huge increase in the demand for housing, especially in central cities, west side of L.A., west side of the Bay Area, and so on. And uh, incomes for most people, for the mass of the working people, three-quarters of the population, basically can't afford the median-priced house or rental anymore. So what's happened? Why has this happened? Well, the conventional view in California, and this is really important for California policymaking and the discourse about housing, is that, oh, it's all supply constriction caused by local opposition, by NIMBYs. But that is not what it's about. What's happened is this huge boom of the 2010s led by tech has brought very rapid growth here and in L.A. It has brought unbelievable affluence at the top and absolutely appalling inequality with the enrichment at the top leaving the mass of the working people, especially the bottom 50% behind. And that means... The housing markets today can only only serve the top quarter of the population at most, and the rest cannot survive, and they're being forced out by the hundreds of thousands to the far exurbs of both our metropolitan areas. They are forced to crowd into substandard housing, multiple families in one house, people living in garages, and so on. That's been true Or just on the streets. For a long time, 
And it's true here now, too. And so there's just a general sense of an enormous housing crisis, but it's driven on the demand side, and this by the very prosperity that everybody is uh, praising and hopes to capture. You know, we all want to be prosperous and rich, but when capitalism does that, it does it for those at the top and the successful corporations, but its normal operating procedure is to leave millions of people behind. Well, we only have a few minutes left, and it's so interesting. I want you to take it there, Dick, into how that's impacted, you know, the housing crisis, which we're all seeing, how it really impacts the environment as well, because you go into that in a lot of ways by talking about how sprawl converts rural to urban in order to have more profit, but then there's the environment, and we've just been living through the worst wildfires, you know, in literally in California history. Maybe we could just end with those environmental challenges and finally just like what makes us still the left coast. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've, especially in the Bay Area, we're very proud of our green belt and our environmental record. L.A. has done an enormous amount to improve its environmental record over the last 30 years. And yet, the problem is with this kind of very rapid growth and enrichment and urban spread impact we're having is often catastrophic. And also, the level at which we have to think about the environment is to be ratcheted up because of global climate change. So although we've done pretty well on things like, you know, personal electrical consumption and water consumption, uh, I'll make a couple points here. The spread of the cities into the rural areas has meant that it's jumped far beyond our best efforts in West L.A. or around the inner bay area to create a, a good green belt or protect our bays, protect our coasts, and so on. And we have to think about protecting... Uh, open space and providing for a better environment for the people in the Inland Empire down there and our new Inland Empire in the Bay Area. Secondly, we have to think about our engagement with wildfire because in California, fire is normal, it's natural, mm-hmm. and with climate change, it's going to get worse. And we have no policy, basically, whatsoever, north or south, about how to control urban growth so as not to put so many people at risk of being burnt out or even killed in these catastrophic wildfires. And the last point I'll make is that we have probably the greatest water storage and transfer system in the world. We can be very proud of it, but it's completely mismanaged. And we have still have San Francisco, City of San Francisco or MWD in, in Southern California align themselves with San Joaquin agribusiness on the view that there ought to be water for all comers under all circumstances, and this is crazy. Snowfall is going to be less. The storage in snow is going to be less in the Sierra Nevada. We have to adapt to a changing water regime, and we have to conserve and not think that we can have supply for all comers. There just isn't any more water. The Colorado River is running historic lows now for a couple decades, and this is going to hit the Sacramento. And so we all have to think about how to reconfigure and a more rational water distribution and water use. Well, Dick, we've run out of time, but you've just given us 
in literally a glimpse and a flavor of this new urban geography that you have written. And I want to highly recommend that the listeners go out and get it and use it. You know, illuminates everything about our present time, the crisis and contradiction of capitalism at its most innovative and dynamic with all of the dark side that goes along with it in terms of inequality, public policy, infrastructure, and environment. And leaving, we didn't really get into the politics for the future, but let's have you back and sort of muse about what may come out of this. We're seeing the beginnings of it now. But Dick Walker, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me, Susan. <laughs> Thank you. And Dick Walker is Professor Emeritus of Geography at, at Berkeley and the Director of the Living New Deal Project. And we are talking about his latest book, Pictures of a Gone City Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Matt Carp with us, Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University and a Jacobin contributing editor. His field is actually the U.S. Civil War era and its relationship to the 19th century world. And he has written an award-winning book, The Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, published by Harvard. And it explores the ways that slavery shaped U.S. foreign relations before the Civil War. You may ask, what's this got to do with the midterms? Well, I'll ask him that. In the article in Jacobin, it's called The 51% Losers, and it's a beautifully written analysis of what this election portends. And he says the Democrats certainly are controlling the House, but their professional class politics are a cul-de-sac. And what we really need desperately is a political revolution driven by the needs and aspirations of a multiracial working class. Welcome Matt Carp. Uh, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Me too. So let's just get right to it. Your article basically says that the midterms were a mass repudiation of Trump and his foul agendas. But did the Democrats achieve a blue wave? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Certainly they did. I think on election night, I don't know how your election night happened on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, <laughs> the initial reports looked pretty grim from a anti-Trump perspective. When Florida went down and Ohio went down, it was looking like a 2016 replay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you had a moment like I did where you saw those needles <laughs> and it yeah. seemed like we were in for it again. I mean, because I, I say this, I guess I should, you know, put the cards on the table. I was very much hoping, as critical as I am of the Democratic Party and where they're going, and we'll get into that, I was very much hoping for a big win and a yeah. wave. And I think ultimately, though, they did get it in terms of raw numbers. I think they're going to end up with about 40 seats in the House, which is really significant, and especially in popular vote terms. That yeah. number is inching up to around 8% which is one of the largest swing in any midterm election in uh, the largest disparity, not swing, in any election since, I think, for at least 40 years. So certainly the Republican Party, not just Trump, but the entire Republican Party was repudiated. The question, though, that's a top-line story, and yeah. uh, I think the media is right to focus on that. But I think when you go below the surface, it's a little more complicated. Well, let's just first tell the listeners the Democrats control the House, but the Republicans increased their margin in the Senate. So let's go back now to the electoral victory that you've started to lay out. 
yeah, it is turning out to be a blue wave when you wrote the article. It wasn't so certain. And I think that here on the West Coast, we had the same reaction as you did with the added sort of jubilation of turning Orange County. And I'll ask you about that as well. But let's get into what is the political significance of what we saw in these midterms. You mentioned, you know, in your article that it's a resounding defeat for Trump, but it's also, and we could probably get right to it, the political victory for neoliberal Democrats in the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say, just on the Senate quickly, I mean, it's clear that, again, as we start from the top and drill down, clearly the main obstacles to both capital D Democratic rule and small d Democratic rule are are not the will of the masses, but the constitutional structure of the republic. That is, the Senate, the Electoral College, the sort of districting, you know, gerrymandering of districts led by state legislatures dominated by conservatives, etc., that's the top-line story. But then, if you go deeper, I mean, in terms of what the limits that the Democrats ran up against. But what my article was focused on was thinking about what are the limits within the Democratic coalition that's newly emerging here, especially after 2016, and the way in which, even in, in the middle of all these impressive wins, you know, wiping out the Republican Party in New England, in New Jersey, in uh, Orange County, the resources, the energy, and the kind of motive force behind this new Democratic Party or this resurgent Democratic Party has overwhelmingly come from wealthier, affluent, professional class voters and especially those voters in suburban districts. And I think that has some implications for how we think about the evolution of the party system and from a left-wing perspective, the future of class politics in this country. Well, right, and this is this is really the key point and it's also, you know, something to think about because within the Democratic Party, the battle lines are kind of drawn between what we call the neoliberal or corporate Democrats and the sort of Sanders wing far more sort of traditional left-wing social democrats and to their left socialists but here it looks like and maybe you could just describe this victory a little bit more that it looks like the corporate dems won with their policy is that how you see it yeah i mean it's not quite as simple as that in terms of the ideological struggle within the party doesn't neatly map on to the kind of class constituencies of the party right so in some places like in orange county right katie porter who's if not Sanders' wing, at least certainly a protege of Elizabeth Warren, who's on the left wing of the of the National Democratic Party, mm-hmm. won in a wealthy suburban district. And in other cases, some of the candidates that did win in less affluent districts aren't necessarily on the sort of left wing of the party. So that's one struggle. It doesn't always map on to the ideological and the class sort of composition pieces don't always match together. But I do think the future ideological trajectory of the party will have a relationship to its constituents. So even if you can point to sort of individual cases where, hey, you know, look, Katie Porter looks pretty good. Good to see that these suburbs are going not just blue, but going progressive blue or going, you know, even Sanders blue. It's also true that the vast majority of the of the new reps are not in the Katie Porter model. They're much more sort of cautious. You know, the people who won in New Jersey, by and large, for instance, are much more cautious centrist. There's a lot of people with national security backgrounds, not necessarily veterans, but like literally CIA and other NATSEC types, and a lot of people who've really tacked to the center to sort of fit these more conservative kind of Mitt Romney voting districts. Well, Matt, one of the things, too, you said it isn't that simple, and I think that's exactly right, that one thing is to understand 
why the Democratic Party leadership chose the emphasis on the better off suburbs and the better off voters and that that was critical to their victory in this midterm, as you say. But what does it allow them to do or not to do or to prevent them from doing? You quote the study from Geismer and Lassiter. Can you just let our listeners know what that means in terms of, let's say, our broader goal of achieving a left-wing political agenda? Yeah. Look, I think in some ways the sort of move to the suburbs is something that the right wing of the party, the sort of new Democrats or neoliberal third way kind of Democrats have been pushing since at least the 1980s, trying to capture, that's what Lily Geismer and Matt Lasseter have written about, trying to capture kind of professional class voters with like maybe liberal social views, but pretty conservative economic views in, the, say, the Boston suburbs or elsewhere. And I think that formula has changed a little bit from the 80s, because as we said, sometimes these suburban seats do toss up people who have at least slightly more left-wing views when it comes to something like regulation of Wall Street or so on. But I think ultimately, if we want to talk about the sort of heavy lifts, so yeah. to speak, of any kind of social democratic policy from Medicare for all to job guarantee or people are talking about a green new deal today now. Right. We're talking about these things that are ultimately going to require in one form or another some pretty serious degree of wealth redistribution. I'm less optimistic than other people are that a lot of these six-figure voters and their representatives are going to be enthusiastic and reliable allies in that fight, given that in a lot of ways they're going to be required to give as much as they get <laughs> right. in this sort of struggle. Yeah, I think this is really a, a key point. So, and then the other tack, you also talk about the complementary emphasis on women and people of color, identity politics. So the Democrats were counting on them to go out against Trump and the Republicans in order to repudiate the foul agenda, as you say, the racist, misogynist, and national chauvinist politics. What was the result of that? How strongly did they come out for the Democrats, and how do you evaluate it? Yeah, I mean, I think in general turnout was up significantly for a midterm, right. which meant it was something like 50%, which is like remarkable in the history of American midterm elections, although yet still very far from a kind of mass mobilization of sort of average Americans. If you think about what share of the sort of multiracial working class voted Democrat, when you count, A, the, the mostly white voters who voted Republican, and then you count the multiracial voters who stayed at home, it's still probably something like only a third of working class voters if you look at turnout, given that turnout is much higher among, if you go up the income ladder and the class ladder. It's still pretty low. There were definitely some surges. I think you could look at Georgia. I think in particular had really high working class black turnout in that governor's race. There were certainly like bright spots from that perspective in a few places, but I think the overall picture of the House election, which was really the national election, more than any of the Senate or the governor elections in a certain sense, the overall picture was not, I don't think, a sort of a wave turnout of working class people of color. I think those voters are generally, to the extent that they vote, they're generally Democrat because the Republican Party was organizing its entire politics against them. But how enthusiastic they are it was a problem that Hillary Clinton ran into in 2016 in places like Detroit and Philadelphia. And I'm not convinced that this midterm shows that it's a problem the Democratic Party has 
fixed. Well, we've seen that in 2016, Trump won the greatest percentage of votes in the white working class, and that means those without a college education, and I guess you can't really call them blue-collar workers because in so many cases they're unemployed or partially employed. But nonetheless, as you said in your article, Matt Carp, they didn't go so much with the Democrats. In what you just said, you've kind of said that that doesn't count for the insurgent candidates like Beto O'Rourke in Texas or Gillum in Florida. But do we know on that aspect, did they do well with the white working class? You know, I'm not sure. I haven't looked closely at Texas. I was sort of looking mostly at a sort of county, and then I did a little dip into precinct stuff actually just this morning, just <laughs> prepping for this conversation. Yeah. Um, in the, mid, in the upper Midwest, because that was the sort of the area, famously, where Trump really picked up a lot of those Obama to Trump voters and really knocked Hillary Clinton out of the park. You know, the two factors being the decline in kind of non-white working class turnout and then white working class voters switching to Trump. So to what extent was that addressed in 2018? You know, if you look at Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Democrats did very well statewide. But again, their strongest swings, absolutely, from 2016, and, and then especially if they're even stronger if you go back to the Obama era when, say, 2012, were really in these wealthy suburbs. I was just looking at, in Oakland County, Michigan, which is the sort of wealthy suburbs of Detroit, you know, Gross Point Blank region right. of Michigan, there's a city, Bloomfield Hills, which is per capita income of around $200,000 a year. So this is really upscale. And it's smaller, and this data is actually in some ways even better if you look at the precinct data than at the county to see, well, because you look at a big county, you might say, well, actually, maybe it's a rich county, but there's the working people who are voting. But if you look at a, a precinct like that, you're really going to see. And Obama got throttled by Romney in Bloomfield Hills in right. 2012. He lost by 25 points. But the Democrats carried that county both for governor and for senator, Whitmer and Stabenow, by double digits. So it's like a massive swing just from 2012 to 2018 on the part of this, like, very wealthy district. And, and you- I don't know. I mean, it makes me a little uneasy. I think it's obviously a good thing in the respect that, you know, if I had been in that district, I would have voted for the Democrats, too. But when those kind of huge swings are driving this, and in some of the upstate counties in these states, in the Iron Range, this kind of traditional stronghold of mining country in northern Minnesota, the Democrat loses, even takes a hit from two years ago, which was already a disaster. You wonder if what's happening is we're really seeing the kind of the national class character of these parties in flux. Well, that's what I was going to just ask you, because we're kind of seeing, well, on the one hand, when, you know, Hillary Clinton called them the deplorables and everyone says, well, they've just decided to forget the white working class and sort of give them to the Republicans. And then you see this interesting sort of change, at least in the rhetoric, not in the policy of the two parties. And I guess really the question then is, is this a viable goal for the Democrats to just leave aside the white working class? And does it mean that that the white working class is necessarily racist. These are giant questions. Yeah, and, of course, yeah. there's also the other part of it, too, that you mentioned in the beginning about gerrymandering and, and other sorts of things that make it difficult to really know at this point, you know, exactly how people voted or would have voted. Yeah, I know it is tricky, and it's a big one. But I think to just unpack the question, yeah. is this a viable coalition for the Democrats? I mean, it sort of depends on what your goals are. If you're a sort of a Democratic Party operative who basically wants to win, say, three out of every five elections with the Republicans, and that's really the limit of your political life goals, then it's definitely viable. I think this definitely showed that. 
and that it may be sustainable. And, you know, as a lot of people were bragging afterwards, you know, these are the most economically dynamic areas of the country. These are young people. These are, this is America's future. The Republicans are only getting stronger among, like, white people over the age of 55. And, you know, there are reasons to think that if you're just strictly thinking about winning, uh, and not necessarily what you can do with a win, then, to be honest, I expect this to continue. And in a larger perspective, if you zoom out, what does this mean? What does this mean about the working class or, you know, right. race and class? The, in the history of American politics, right, to go back to put on my historian hat for a minute, the idea of a kind of party system that's basically divided into neat class categories is the exception, not the rule. I mean, I think it's only basically the New Deal era in the mid-20th century and then sort of dissolving into the late 20th century, and it may be totally dissolved now, where you had a kind of, the Democratic Party was the party of labor, sort of grounded in strong labor unions, and the party of a kind of multi-ethnic working class. And the Republican Party was the party of the middle class, of the professional class, and of the rich. And by and large, that was the sort of driver of American politics in a lot of the 20th century. And there were other other complicating factors, of course. But if you look at the longer history of the country, it's much more common for ethnocultural and racial and religious distinctions to sort of drive these party divisions and the parties to be diverse class coalitions you know, in which class really isn't the sort of the focus. Well, now, we may be going back to that. Right. Well, in the last minutes of the program, I want you to go into the one race that you sort of say in your article, the one in southern West Virginia where Richard Ojeda built his campaign around working class issues, teacher strikes, attacks on his millionaire opponent, and a celebration of the working class. Now, he didn't win, but you see something significant in that, and it raises the question, too. You say that his project must be our project, and I want to ask what you think in that respect. Can Bernie Sanders or a Bernie Sanders-type candidate break through all of this and bring the party back, essentially, or take it further to the left? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's really difficult for these historical reasons, and I think there's no question that racism does play a huge role in activating, and a racism sort of activated by a Republican Party that's running on this in pushing these voters to the right. And the national Democratic brand was too toxic in West Virginia for somebody like Ojeda, which is, I think, how he pronounces his name, oh, yeah, probably. To, um, yeah. to overcome, even with his class politics. But I do think the fact that he picked up 36 points from how Hillary Clinton did in that same district, the largest swing in the entire country, shows that that kind of Bernie-style anti-millionaire and billionaire, tax the rich and give people health care kind of politics does have legs, not just with the Democrats' current coalition, but with uh, the broader working class, including the white part of it. And to abandon that, that kind of politics, or to, and to abandon specifically thinking about building a working class politics, is to surrender. To me, it's dangerous for the future of any kind of social democratic policy to surrender that weapon in the political war. I mean, when I say the New Deal was the exception, the New Deal was also the coalition was also the only era that we got to see things like Social Security, Medicare, the Civil Rights Act. These things were all driven by a party that drew its strength from the working class. And to trade that in for a much different coalition now is, is dubious to me. And just finally, are you hopeful that given, let's say, the spectacular growth of, say, DSA and, you know, the fact that the millennials in their large majority proclaim themselves to be more favorable to socialism than capitalism, and because of this fight within the Democratic Party, how do you see that lining up in the next, say, two to four years? 
Yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. I mean, in some ways, I'm. I have to say, I'm a little less hopeful than I was in the heyday of the of the Bernie era of 2016 because I think this new kind of class bifurcated party has. Bernie pointed in a different direction in, the, in terms of the voters he was getting in the primary in places like Michigan, Wisconsin. He pointed in a different direction. But Hillary won and then Trump won, and those were both bad, I think, for the left. Even though DSA has recruited a lot of people and there's, you know, good things in the polling about millennials and post-millennials and so on, I worry that we didn't take the Bernie path. And that, that's going to be a, a hard, it's going to be hard for the left to sort of reorient itself in the era of Trump. I'm not giving up hope. I think Bernie will probably run in 2020. Uh, I'm a little less optimistic that the party will be behind him. We'll see. Well, we really are out of time, but we'll come back to you, Matt Carp, and ask you to look at this sort of long line of history since you have rooted yourself in the Civil War politics and you know a little bit about this. But I want to thank you so much, Matt Carp. He's Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University, a Jacobin contributing editor. We've been talking about his article that is is still featured in Jacobin Magazine online called The 51% Losers. It's beautifully written. It's a deep analysis of what this boost in Democratic Party fortunes pretend and about the professional class politics that the Democrats have adopted that Matt says are a cul-de-sac. What we really need is a political revolution driven by the needs and aspirations of the multiracial working class. Matt Carp, thanks so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.